You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do pray that we would glory in the cross and not that the cross is, exists, but that it's empty. That Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection are indeed our boast and our glory and our hope. Would you teach us through your word that your church might be built up and encouraged even this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, good morning. Christ is indeed risen. Amen. Now, every Sunday when we gather, we remember and rehearse this gospel truth, right? We honor God as holy. We acknowledge our sin and our need of forgiveness. We confess our sin knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us because of Jesus. We remember Christ's sacrifice and, and, and the purchasing of our redemption. And we celebrate that. We remember that in the elements of bread and juice in the Lord's Supper. We believe that in his death, he conquered sin and death. In his death, he put death to death. And in his resurrection, he makes eternal life a reality for all those who have faith in Jesus. So we respond week in and week out when we gather like this to the work of Christ, to the word of Christ with worship. And then after some time of gathering together, we are commissioned back out to the places we live and work as ambassadors, joyfully sharing the good news of Jesus. So every week, whether we recognize it or not, we are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. And today, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, we take a moment to emphasize the wonder and the glory of not only Christ's death for sin, but his raising to life for our justification, that we are made right before God, that in Jesus we have everlasting life. So when someone declares, he is risen, the response is, He is risen indeed. It's a public proclamation. It's like we're sharing this together and we're saying it publicly together that sin, death, and hell no longer hold sway over us, but that we are wrapped up into Jesus' victory over death and that we share in his glorious power and everlasting life. So church, this morning, Christ is risen Amen. Amen. So, we're going to continue in Luke. You can grab your Bibles. Turn to Luke chapter 19. If you need a Bible, some folks are coming around. Um, We're going to read God's Word together. Luke chapter 19. If you do not own a Bible, please feel free to take one of these blue ones that are being handed out. You can have one uh, so you have a Bible of your own. Last week, we looked at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. Jesus was coming not only to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples, but Jesus was coming as he's told his disciples now over and over again that he's coming to die on a cross for the sins of the world. That his mission 
was to seek and save the lost. And we read last week how he approached the city on a donkey, entering into Jerusalem as the rightful king over God's people. Today we're going to pick that passage up in verse 41. We'll read through verse 48. And Luke, in his gospel account, groups these things together. So Jesus' entrance into the city kind of includes his riding into the city on a donkey. It includes his weeping and it includes his cleansing of the temple. This is all part of, as Luke groups it together, all part of Jesus' entrance. So today we're going to look at these final eight verses of chapter 19. So we're going to read our text and then we'll unpack it. Let's start 19, starting in verse 41. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. And when he, Jesus, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Verse 45. As he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. As he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. May we have ears to hear God's word this morning. Amen? Amen. Now, last week in the first part of Jesus' entry into the city, Jesus is making a declaration of sorts. At least that was the claim I made last week, that Jesus is saying in no uncertain terms that he is the rightful king. And that he is worthy of all the honor and the praise that is coming to him because of who he is. And if you'll notice, the opinions about Jesus have always been strong. Those that like him, love him. Those that don't like him, hate him. But it almost seems like the opinions about Jesus are getting stronger. We read just last week, it's not just one or two people who have been healed who are now like can't keep it in. It's a whole crowd of people who are shouting praise. Crowds of people. Multitudes is the word Luke uses. But those who are opposed to Jesus are also increasing in their opposition. And I think it's clear what Jesus is doing here. His words and his actions are answering the question about who he truly is. He's kind of peeling back the the questions Who is this guy really? Is he just a a, a prophet? Just like Elijah or Moses even? What's really going on here? Is he just a a teacher? Unique in his teaching? Or, man, he speaks with some kind of authority. I wonder where that comes from. Jesus is clarifying who he is. Now, there's a theological concept. I referenced it last week. That references the, the threefold office of Christ. That Jesus holds the office, the position of prophet, priest, and king. 
These are all significant roles or offices all throughout the life of God's people in the Scriptures. Through Moses, God gave His people the law. And priests from the tribe of Levi excuse me, were supposed to administer that law. But the Levitical priesthood was temporary. It was a temporary priesthood. God sent prophets to pronounce blessings and judgments, to warn of God's people when they strayed from Him, and to call them back to the promises, to restore them when the time was right. That's all through the Old Testament. And when the people asked for a human king to rule over them, the Lord gave them first Saul, who was not a good king. But then in God's mercy, He gave them David, who was not perfect by any stretch, but was used mightily by God as a placeholder, one who would represent what the kingdom of righteousness and justice could look like. And this is where we started last week. In his entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, Jesus is saying, I am the true and better, if I can say it this way, the perfect and final king. And in our text today, as Jesus weeps over the city and its inhabitants, I believe Jesus is showing himself to be a true and better prophet to God's people, showing both his heart of compassion and his righteousness in judgment And as he clears and cleanses the temple, Jesus is showing himself to be a true and better priest for God's people, who not only declares them clean by the sacrifice of a substitute, but who washes them clean as he spills his own blood. So part one was kind of last week, Jesus was the rightful king. Part two this morning is this, that Jesus is the promised prophet and Jesus is also the faithful priest. And we'll see these kind of working together. So that's our big idea today. That Jesus is the promised prophet and that Jesus is our faithful priest. Let's look at the first one we see here. Verses 41 through 44. Now as Jesus rides into the city, there's all this commotion, right? The cloaks and the palm branches and the the shouting. And all of this is happening on the road that is entering into the city from the east. Now, how long was this procession? We don't know. But as it's going on, Jesus is nearing the entrance to the city of Jerusalem. So this is happening right outside the city on his way in. In verse 41, Luke says, And when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus is coming from Bethany, a few miles to the east, down the Mount of Olives, toward the eastern gate. And in the ancient city of Jerusalem, there was a gate on the east side, much of it is still visible, called the Golden Gate or the Mercy Gate. Scholars believe this is the path that Jesus took into Jerusalem in his triumphal entry. I think I have a a picture of it even. Maybe I do. There it is. It's boarded up. It's like it's blocked off now. You can't enter into the city through this gate any longer. But this is the, the gate that scholars believe this is the path in from Bethany from the east. This is likely Jesus' entrance into the old city. So along the road, as he's approaching the city, he gets a a glimpse of it. He sees it amongst the crowds. And Luke says, as the city came into his view, Jesus wept over the city. This is the second time in the Gospels where we see Jesus weeping. The first one is recorded in John 11, when Jesus arrives in Bethany and his friend Lazarus has died and 
His sister comes out and says, Lord, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And we read that Jesus weeps. And here as he draws near to Jerusalem, Luke tells us that he weeps over it. question is, what does this have to do with Jesus as prophet? If you go back all the way to Deuteronomy 18, the scripture that, one of the scriptures that Steph read this morning, the Lord tells Moses he's going to raise up a prophet. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. So from Moses onward, the people expected prophets. They expected people sent by God to speak on God's behalf to them. In fact, in Deuteronomy, they they don't want God to speak to them directly anymore. It's too scary. Can you send us someone else? And so God says, they're right. I am scary. I'll send them a prophet. Now, they're waiting for a prophet. And along the way, there are these, if I can use it this way, lowercase p, lesser prophets, who are speaking on behalf of God to the people, encouraging them in the things God has already said, reminding them of God's promises, calling them back on the ways that they've strayed, And so God, over time, would send a prophet to the people. And it's a mixed bag of response from God's people. Even though they asked for a prophet, and God said, I'm going to send you prophets, they often did not listen to those prophets. Time and time again, they would reject the prophet and his message. It was too hard. We don't like it. I don't think God would say that to us. That's not what he means. Right? So the prophet would then, usually through tears or grief, speak judgments against God's people for their disobedience. Not because they were disobeying the prophet, but they were disobeying God, who was speaking through the voice he had chosen. This was true for one of the most significant prophets in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah. Specifically, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. See, God's people had disregarded God's instructions. They had done evil. And Jeremiah is given a picture, a vision, of what judgment for sin is going to look like. And it breaks him. He sees what judgment really looks like, and it just wrecks him. In Jeremiah 9, he describes God's rightful judgment as death climbing up into our windows and entering our palaces. That's the picture he has. And he weeps because of how devastating he knows it is. Beginning of Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 1, he says this, Oh, that my head were waters and my eyes a fountain of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. The, the children, the, the offspring of God's people, the slain of my daughter, are going to suffer Terrible judgment for their sin, and he weeps over it. He wishes his eyes were fountains and his head were water so that you couldn't tell how much weeping there was. It would blend in with a pool of water. That's the picture here. One scholar says it this way. Jeremiah doesn't just proclaim God's message. He embodies God's message. And so in a physical way, Jeremiah's weeping allows the people to see how God feels about the sorrow of having to judge them. They can see it on him. 
He weeps over the judgment to come. And he also, he doesn't just embodies God's grief towards his people. He also embodies and is showing the grief of the people themselves. They grieve the impending judgment to come. They hear the message and say, this isn't good. Right? And so Jeremiah serves as a mediator of sorts between God and the people. He feels and expresses both God's grief and the grief of the people. He bears the grief and pain in his own physical body, and he weeps. Furthermore, in Jeremiah, from about chapters 11 through 20, if you want to read that this week for fun, it's a series of prayers from the prophet Jeremiah where he just pours out his heart to God over what's to come. He he expresses anger and frustration Not just for God's judgment, because he too is facing persecution. The people don't want to hear the message that he's giving them. Evil men are seeking to take his life. And so he is bearing on his own shoulders all this sorrow and sadness. This is not the kind of ministry Jeremiah was hoping for when he said, Sure, God, I'll I'll bring your message to the people. If only the people would have listened to the voice of the Lord. If only they'd followed Moses' instructions. If only they'd listened to the prophets that came before. If only the people would listen now to the voice of the Lord through Jeremiah. Right? So at its heart, Jeremiah's message, the weight of his message is one of exile. Even Jeremiah's most famous words, the ones that that we put on graduation cards when someone graduates from high school or from college, Jeremiah 29, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. It's a fantastic verse. It's a fantastic passage of Scripture. Just terribly out of context when we use it that way. Here's why. The text that we put on those graduation cards is a promise of restoration that will come after exile in Babylon. So in context, what we're saying to someone when we give them that graduation card is like, have fun in Babylon which might be true going to college. I don't know. I've got a couple amens from the college students in the room. It is a godless place, Lord. We need your assistance. Right? But that's what's happening. Let me, let me read the larger context. Jeremiah, starting in, 29, starting in verse 10, he says this, For thus says the Lord, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. When you've been in exile a generation... I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise, and I will bring you back to this place. Here's the verse. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a hope and a a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. There's another one we might be familiar with. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes. And gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, judgment, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now look at Jesus' words in Luke 19, starting in verse 42. Would that you, speaking to Jerusalem and its inhabitants, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Look at verse 43. Here's the consequences. This is very Jeremiah-like of Jesus, if I can say it that way. 
Your enemies will surround you. Your enemies will tear you to the ground. And not just you, but your offspring, your children. That is your heritage, your future. And not one stone will be left upon another. Rubble. Nothing left. Why? Because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, this isn't a vindictive and angry Jesus who's just fed up with his disobedient children. This is a compassionate Jesus. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And he's always just and he's always good. In fact, it's through tears that the prophet Jeremiah in 20, uh, chapter 9, verse 23 and 24 says this. Thus says the Lord. He's just pronounced, I, you're going to go into exile for a generation. I will restore you. But you're going to feel this one. And then he says this, verse 23. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast, boast in this. That he understands and knows me, Jeremiah writes, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This is not an angry and vindictive God who brings judgment because he is righteous. He is acting always out of steadfast love and justice and righteousness. We have to keep that in mind. Jesus is weeping because the people he came to save should have known him. They should have been ready for his visitation. And yet, when he arrives, not only do they not recognize him, they reject him. And so Jesus, the promised prophet, the true and better Jeremiah, embodies the grief that God feels over sin and the grief that the people will feel as judgment ultimately comes. Luke continues the narrative. Jesus enters the city now and enters into the courts around the temple. Verse 45. As he entered the temple and began to drive out those who, who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Here's where Jesus is not only a promised prophet, but is showing himself to be a faithful priest. Now, when you think of a priest, you might think of someone wearing white robes and a funny hat. And while a priest in the Bible would wear ceremonial robes, there would be proper procedures, he was also part livestock wrangler and part butcher. If the prophet was the voice between God and man, the priest was the hands. The job of the priest was to mediate, go between God and who is holy, and man who is unholy. And the vehicle, the bridge for that mediation was blood. So under the law of Moses and under the Levitical priesthood, the priest was responsible to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people, to make them clean, to declare the people clean once the sacrifice was completed. So Jesus enters the temple courts, And he drives out all those who had tables set up to sell goods. And Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah when he says, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. See, part of what's happening here is that the people were able to buy an offering as they came into the temple. 
Now, this wasn't necessarily all bad, right? Some people may not have had their own birds to raise or their own livestock to raise. And so they would purchase one with money that they had. But for some, it was an excuse to not actually bring the best of what God had provided. If I lived in a town or a place far away and was coming into Jerusalem for the Passover, rather than truck my lamb across the country, it would just be more convenient to buy one when I get there. Right? Now, I might pay for the convenience of it, but that is at least part of what's happening here. Anyone who's gone on a road trip with kids has realized, like, some things we decide to bring with us in the cooler... Other things we just pay $8 for at the convenience store. That's what's happening here, though. Except for we're not talking about a road trip and snacks. We're talking about what God has instructed his people to bring for proper worship. And so many of these sellers operated not out of a ministry to assist God's people in worship, but in order to enrich themselves, right? You can give us one coin for a pigeon, but two coins, we'll get you a dove. Ten coins. We might even throw in a sickly little lamb, right? I mean, can you, can you imagine the markup on a lamb with no spots? Talk about inflation, right? And so a lucrative backroom deal essentially was made between the priests who oversaw the temple and these sellers who sat in the temple courts. They were selling items. They were doing currency exchange. Like, you could bring your gift your gift of money, your offerings to the temple, but you can only pay in local currency, so we're going to have to charge you an exchange rate with your home currency in order to, you know, turn in the right kinds of coins. This thing was happening in the temple, right inside the temple courts, and Jesus, as the faithful priest, is very clearly identifying the sickness that has been festering here amongst God's people, and he does the compassionate thing. The compassionate thing is he clears out the wound. That's what he does. He drives out the sellers and he cleanses the temple, saying, no, 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 you've forgotten. The purpose of this place is to commune with God. You've made it into something else. So it's clear that Jesus cares about God's holiness. Why else would he bother to clear out the temple? And what's interesting about this is that Jesus knows that the time of of temple worship is coming to an end. He's said as much. He just wept over the judgment that's coming. No stone will remain standing. He knows that that's coming. And yet, that even in a few short days when he breathed his last, that the veil that stood between the people and the Holy of Holies, which represented God's presence, that when Jesus breathed his last, that temple veil was torn in two from top to bottom, signifying that the, the way is now open to God the Father, not through a, a, a lamb, not through a curtain, but through him, forever altering the relationship between God and man. Jesus knew that the priesthood from the tribe of Levi was a temporary placeholder under the law of Moses. And all of this was coming down in order to be rebuilt. And not for a temporary priest, but for a new and better, an eternal priest who would cleanse and care for and consecrate God's people forever. Here's how the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus. Hebrews chapter 5. For every high priest, chosen from among men, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God 
to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Speaking of the priest, an earthly priest. And no one takes this honor for himself only when he is called by God just as Aaron was, Aaron Moses' brother. So, also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. This is the blessing of God the Father to Jesus Christ. And he also says in another place, You are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews is actually quoting there from the end of Psalm 110. Psalm of David, which was a prophetic poem pointing here to Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who would be priest forever. Jesus, who was born in the flesh. Jesus, who took on a human nature and according to his humanity endured suffering and weakness. He was appointed as high priest by God himself. And noticed, not a temporary one, not according to the order of Levi, like Aaron. But Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that's the coolest name I've ever heard. Melchizedek. Name your sons Melchizedek. See how that goes. Genesis 14 is where we meet him. King of Salem, he's called a priest to the Most High God. Now, we don't have time this morning to dive into Melchizedek and the biblical possibilities of who that man was. Was he a human being? Like in history, was he a theophany, a, 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 an early a pre-incarnate description of Jesus? We're not going to get into that theological rabbit trail this morning. We're going to just say this, that Melchizedek's priesthood is an eternal one, not bound by genealogy, whereas the Levitical priesthood is temporary. Your dad was a priest, you were a priest, your son would possibly become a priest. That's how it worked here. That's temporary. Priests die, but not this one. That's the point Hebrews is making. If you want to talk about Melchizedek, shoot me an email, we'll talk about it over coffee. The reality is Jesus is, is asserting, I am that eternal high priest. I have come to purify my people Make them holy, make them acceptable, and nothing will end my priesthood. Jesus is the faithful priest. And look at verse 47. And all during the week leading to Passover, Jesus would come back into the city and come back into Jerusalem and come back into the temple. Luke tells us teaching daily. And listen to the responses, the the widely contrasting responses to Jesus. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, these were the elite, those with cultural clout, those with societal power. They sought to destroy him. They didn't just dislike him. They were looking for ways to end him. See how the opposition to Jesus continues to increase? But so does the devotion. But they could not find anything they could do. Why? Because the people were hanging on Jesus' words. They could not get enough of what this man was saying. Some reject him. Some are receptive to him. And not just open to him, but they're eager to hear from him. Luke says they were hanging on his words. 
question is, so what? So, so what does all this mean? It's not enough that Jesus just, okay, great. He holds these titles as prophet, priest, and king. What does all this mean? Even on a Sunday like Easter, what does it mean for us? Now, all of what we just read comes before Jesus is falsely accused, convicted in a show trial, and hung on a Roman torture device, a cross. This is before his side is pierced and blood and water flow out. This is before he's taken down and placed in the tomb of a rich man. This is before his body would lie cold in that tomb for three days. This is before that glorious morning when his friends find the tomb empty. And I love that John writes, and he ran on ahead of Peter. It's always it's one of my favorite instances. John's like, and he was faster than Peter. Mary's at the tomb. Why are you here? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Right? He, in the grave earlier, just a few hours earlier, is now alive. And for us, we live on this side of the narrative in Luke. We live on this side of the, the cross and the empty tomb. We live on this side of Jesus ascending to heaven to, to sit at the right hand of the Father. We live on this side of that. And yet, Jesus isn't a temporary king. He's a forever king. When he rides into Jerusalem here, it's on. When he asserts himself as true and better prophet, he is the final prophet. From this point forward, when he weeps over the people, when he clears out the temple, when the veil is torn, he is asserting, I am high priest forever. So let's not miss that Jesus is even now a compassionate prophet. Even now, Jesus weeps over the sins of humanity, the cruelty, the, the stubbornness, the, the pride. All of this grieves Jesus, who hates evil because he is perfectly aware of the judgment that is owed for sin. He knows it. In fact, he knows it so well because he bore that judgment for sin, for all those who have faith in him, in his own body. If anyone knows the curse and the weight of judgment, it's Jesus. If anyone knows the pain and the consequences of sin, it's him. So the question that I've been wrestling with this week, uncomfortably so, is do I have the same kind of compassion for those who are lost? So welcome to my discomfort. Do we have this same kind of compassion for those who are lost? The Apostle Paul says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. For whom? For those who are lost. For those who know of Jesus but don't have faith in him. And it isn't those who are just openly hostile to him, but those who are willfully ignorant. Jesus says, would that you had known. I didn't know is not an answer that we'll be able to offer when we're standing before God. I, I didn't know is not a good response in that moment. And that's part of what drives Jesus to tears. His very own people, who should have been ready to receive him as their Messiah, were not. 
That's why the Son of Man had to be lifted up. That's why the weeping prophet had to embody the sin and shame on the cross so that everyone might see the evil of sin that is in every human heart. Like the song we often sing, it was my sin that held him there. It wasn't a nail until it was accomplished. So the reason Jesus was lifted up and hung on a cross is so that everyone might see both the evil of sin and the mercy of God that is present to pay for and cover our sins. Do we have the same kind of compassion for those who are lost? An earnest weeping and a deep compassion for those who in their arrogance and in their ignorance are those for whom Jesus came he sought out to save. It's Charles Spurgeon who, who said this, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We're not trying to outlove God by not talking about sin. It's actually love and compassion and mercy like Jesus has. Do we have the same kind of compassion for those who are lost? It's the first question. Here's the second one How receptive are we to the cleansing work of Jesus? There's a relief that we do and should experience when we receive God's grace, right? We feel it when we take communion regularly. We, we think about it on, on days like Easter Sunday when we recognize all that it, that it meant and means for us to be forgiven of our sins, right? When we receive the grace of God, there is a removal of guilt and shame. It washes over us, and we praise God for that. But sometimes the cleansing that Jesus has in mind in our lives involves flipping over some tables. Sometimes it's a little chaotic in our lives as he comes in and drives out the wickedness that has set up shop in our hearts. Right? And we like the relief that comes as guilt and shame are removed, but we don't always love the discomfort that comes in the remodeling, the demo, and the rebuilding process. Hebrews 10 says, For by a single offering, he, speaking of Jesus, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. I know I've said this before. I don't think you should have favorite verses in the Bible, maybe. But if, if, if you're allowed, this is one of mine. He has perfected, past tense, done, for all time, those who are being sanctified made clean, washed clean, made new. Those who are being made, present, passive, meaning we are being acted upon. Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being made perfect. He is, has cleansed and is cleansing the temple. His people, you and me. How receptive are we 
to the cleansing work of Jesus? What tables is he overturning that we so quickly set back up? What does surrender actually look like? Hanging on his every word as he does what he does in our lives. Jesus, the high priest, is holy. He knows and loves holiness. And in him, he makes us and is making us holy. Friends, I hope that as we see Jesus as prophet, priest, and king, that this elevates a little bit the glory of the resurrection that we're celebrating this morning. That we can see in Jesus' resurrection from the dead that Jesus weeping over the lost gives way to Jesus wiping away all of our tears. He weeps so that our tears will be wiped away. That in Jesus cleansing all the wickedness in the temple, it gives way to Jesus cleansing all the wickedness in us. That this Resurrection Sunday we celebrate that Jesus has conquered once and for all sin, death, hell, and the grave. That Jesus is the true and better prophet who compassionately and clearly calls out to all who will hear him to respond in repentance and faith. That Jesus is the true and better priest who covers all of the sins of his people, not with the blood of a lamb, but with his own blood, so that we're not clean temporarily, but forever. Jesus is the true and better king who rules and reigns over his kingdom and over every human heart with righteousness and justice. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. So let's worship our prophet, priest, and King Jesus together. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you. You are perfect in all of your ways. That at the right time you sent Christ to die for the ungodly to assert himself as Lord and King. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor prophetically. And then to serve as the one who would not only be just, but who would justify us by cleansing us with his own blood. Would we see you for who you are will we worship you for who you are. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.